I don't know if you've had that experience where you're getting ready for the day and you're getting your hair ready. And there's that one piece of hair that won't get into place. Everything else looks good, but there's that one piece of hair. And what do you stress about? The one piece of hair. Everything else looks great, but that one piece of hair. Or as a teenager, maybe you had this experience, you looked really good. Except for that small blemish right there on your face, forehead, chin, cheek. It was somewhere... And it was that one detail that you couldn't, you couldn't stop thinking about, right? That one small detail. Sometimes we get caught in the details. Details can be good, but sometimes we lock in on those small things and we can't let go. Today, as we walk through this next passage in the Gospel of Mark, there's this one detail, one detail that I just can't get over. And I cannot stop thinking about. And that's what I want to talk about today. This one detail that I just can't stop looking at. It's something I had never seen before until it caught me. And then all of a sudden, that's all I could see. So we pick up walking through the Gospel of Mark with a very famous story, but not so famous detail. Let's take a look. Mark chapter, Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick up at verse 45. Verse 45, we are, we are coming right off the heels, uh, on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Right after he has fed 5,000 people with five loaves, two fish, we walk into this story. Here's what we read. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, And he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out because they had all seen him. They saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennarset, and they anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus, and they ran across the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This famous story, Jesus walking on the water, this is one we've heard over and over again. And so from the, from the get-go, let me just say that I have no problem with Jesus walking on water. I think Jesus was so smart, he understood how to change the molecular uh, the, the water at a molecular level so that he could actually walk on water. We have figured out how to make different chemicals come together to kill bacteria in the body. We call them antibiotics, right? So we have figured out how to arrange space and chemicals in order to make certain things happen. Would, you, would anyone have ever thought 150 years ago we would have understood how to put together, put together certain, certain pieces of metal 
making them go at a certain speed so that it could fly for hours in the air. Never would have thought that could happen. But we figured out how to make, to arrange physical objects in such a way to make that happen. I think Jesus is so brilliant that he simply understands the way water is put together in such a way that he could walk on it. So I don't have any problem with this. And that's really not the thing I want to sit with. What I want to pay attention to is that small detail that I can't get over. It's that piece of the passage where we read about Jesus intending to walk past the disciples as they struggled, as they strained at the oars in the middle of the lake as the wind pushed against them. Now, we don't really catch it in the NIV. But it seems to say that the NIV, the New International Version, what I just read, seems to say that Jesus was going to walk past the disciples as they struggled in the middle of the sea against the wind that night, right after feeding the 5,000. That just seems real odd to me. So we take a look at some other translations to kind of get a literal reading and then the sense of the reading there that maybe we're not catching in the New International Version. Take a look at just some different translations on how they translate this phrase, this one detail I can't get over. He was about to pass by. That's the NIV, what we just read. The Christian Standard Bible, a bit more literal, says he came towards them and wanted to pass by them. The New Revised Standard Version, again, a little more literal here, says he intended to pass them by. The New Living Translation, which is going to get the sense of the text, says he intended to go past them. And then the English Standard Version, probably one of the more literal of all translations right now, says he meant to pass by them. So Jesus is in prayer that evening. He looks out. He sees the disciples struggling at the oars. I don't know how far out they are at this point, but he lets hours go by before he ever does anything. It's just before dawn that he decides to walk out. So Jesus has let his students struggle in the middle of strong winds at sea. This doesn't make sense to me. i got to ask, why? Why in the world would Jesus allow his disciples to struggle in the middle of the sea as the wind crashes against their boat? This doesn't seem like a compassionate friend. This doesn't seem like someone I would describe as kind. If I watch my friend struggling, I'm going to go and help. But here we see Jesus looks out, he sees them straining, the wind's against the boat, and, and it, does, it takes until dawn, just before dawn, before Jesus goes out and walks on water. And then the scripture here tells us, Mark records, that he was going to pass by them. He intended to walk past them. He allowed them to suffer. He allowed them to struggle. That just seems real odd to me. And so I wonder, why would Jesus allow his students to struggle? I think it's the same reason, I think it's the same reason that Jesus sent them out at the start of this chapter in Mark 6. He sent them out two by two with only the clothes on their back. Who sends their friends out on a missionary journey with just the clothes on their back? I'm sending someone with a big checkbook. That's what I'm doing. I'm making sure they've raised enough money, and then they go out. Jesus sent them out two by two, if you remember, and he sent them out only with their clothes on their back. Because he was training them. They were his apprentices. And he was training them 
to learn to live in the abundant resources of the kingdom of God. And there are some things you can't learn, you can't learn only by information. You have to do your clinicals. You've got to go out and experience it. So here's how I would summarize what I think is going on. I think Jesus let his disciples struggle because it was part of them learning to trust the abundant resources of the kingdom of God. I think what you have here on the Sea of Galilee as they struggle with the wind hitting their boat is the same thing you had when they went out two by two without any clothes, uh, with only the clothes on their back. I think Jesus is continuing to train them to live in the kingdom even in the midst of struggle. Because in this world, there will be struggle. Now, we, we have often have a problem with that because we don't like any, we don't like struggle. We don't want any problem. We want things to be comfortable. Who wants pain? I don't want pain. I'll run from pain. Get me away from it. So, so the idea that God would be okay with suffering, that he actually would use suffering, that he would allow struggle in order to train his students to trust the abundant resources of the kingdom seems real odd to me. And yet, over and over again in the Bible, over and over again in the Bible, we see that God's people suffer. So this isn't a new story. This isn't the first time anything like this has ever been seen. Mark 6 is not introducing us to a new idea. So all I want to do is take a little, little tour, just a little tour through some key scriptures that, that bring this to the front, to the forefront. Take a look. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, a description of Israel in Egypt. Psalm 78, we'll just take a look at a few verses. Then Israel entered Egypt, and Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes. Ah, we've got an enemy now introduced. Whose hearts he turned to hate his people to conspire against his servants. If you remember this story, Israel goes into Egypt, they prosper, and then a new pharaoh, a new king, comes to the throne and begins to oppress God's people. And that oppression goes on for 400 years. Egypt is a dark place, and yet God has his people there. Take a look. Let's take a look at another, another scripture Psalm 23, 4. Remember, David wrote this psalm. And there in Psalm 23, he writes, I walk through the darkest valley. Many of you know this as walking through the valley of the shadow of death. David pens these words. You would think that the one anointed by God, the one whose throne will be established forever and ever, that they would kind of live in a Disneyland. Right? I mean, I... I would think, if I'm going to bless someone, I'm not giving them suffering. I'm giving them, I'm giving them abundance. And yet here is this king whose throne will be established forever and ever, in whose line Jesus will ultimately come. He's writing, even though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Let's take a look. Another, another key passage, John 16, 33, the words of Jesus. He says this to his students later in, later in his ministry. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. You know what I never see on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat? I never see this verse written in nice cursive posted for, for Motivation Monday. I never, I never read this one. 
This one doesn't strike me as one that's going to bring great encouragement to your life. But Jesus tells his students in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. You're going to suffer. You will struggle. You will find yourself in a boat, struggling against the wind, straining at the oars. This is the kind of world you live in. The Apostle Paul writes, writes about his own experience, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Here, the Apostle Paul, Jesus revealed himself personally to Paul. And yet, Paul suffers day in and day out, begging God, take it away. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. We don't know what this messenger of Satan we don't know the details of this messenger of Satan, but we know that it was bad enough that Paul is begging God, take it away, take it away, take it away. This doesn't seem like the good life. This doesn't seem like a life of comfort. And Jesus himself, Jesus himself says this. Mark 8, we'll go to Mark 8, 31. We'll get here eventually. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, oh, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. He would be killed. The story, the story of Egypt, the story of going to a dark place, the story of suffering that we find over and over and over again in the Bible gets played out again in the life of Jesus. To the point where he would be killed. And he would suffer many terrible things. Even Jesus wasn't immune to suffering in this world. We look at the disciples straining at the oars wondering why? Why, why. why would you allow this Jesus? They're your students. But Jesus himself is walking that same road. He too will find himself in a boat straining at the oars. But for him he will be killed. He will be killed. So these all look like quite bleak stories along the way throughout the Bible. We find God's people suffering. And so I shouldn't be too surprised when I see Jesus allowing his students to strain at the oars with the wind beating up against the boat and him waiting just before dawn to do anything about it. And then you know what happens. He's going to, in, he intends to walk past them, not even to stop the suffering. But remember, they see him, they think it's a ghost, they are terrified, and they cry out. And then Jesus does the unexpected. You see, if I have a plan, and you mess up my plan, I'm probably coming with some type of scolding, or at least judgment in my mind. I will tear you down, even if I don't do it verbally. I wouldn't do that to any of you, just so you know. Like, that's just, this is obviously hypothetical for other people, not you. These are everyone else. But if you mess up a plan, you mess up a plan I have, I'm going to be frustrated. And yet, what do we see Jesus doing? He diverts from his plan to move past them. He stops and he speaks. Take a look. Just review that part of the story. Immediately, immediately. Not even thinking here, immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then what happens? Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. 
Here, we don't see Jesus scolding or judging. We see him giving away compassion generously. And then you know what happens? The disciples have a really hard time understanding how to make all that, make sense of all that. But when I go and I review all those stories of darkness, all those places where God's people suffer, you know I find a theme emerging. Let me just summarize it this way. God's people may struggle, but their story never ends in despair. Their story never ends in despair. God is there saying, it is I, don't be afraid. It is I, don't be afraid. That's what we see. Take a look. Take a look at Psalm 78. Then Israel entered Egypt, and you know what happens in Egypt. 400 years of suffering, but the story didn't end there. The psalmist continues to review that story. He brought out Israel. That's the exodus. He brings them out, laden with silver and gold, and from among their tribes, no one faltered. He spread out a cloud as a covering and a fire to give light at night. Let's go to that next slide. They asked, and he brought, out, brought them quail. He fed them well with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed like a river in the desert. That's God saying, it is I. Do not be afraid. And it looked like water gushing out of a rock. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, uh, if only, if he would have ended there, we wouldn't be quoting it very often. But he continued, didn't he? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's another way of saying, it is I. Don't be afraid. John 16, in this world you will have trouble. That'd be a bit depressing if he didn't continue. But then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's another way of saying, it is I. Do not be afraid. Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he begged God right here, given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And God never did. You know what he said? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God says, I have you. That's another way of saying, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then Jesus, remember how Jesus ended this prediction in Mark chapter 8? Remember how he ended that? He ended it with saying that, that he must suffer many terrible things. He's going to be rejected. He would be killed. Then he continues. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. The story of God's people never ends in despair. Now, it does not come, comfort does not come at the moment we typically want it. But God will never let his people in with despair. Even when the Son of Man is killed, but he raised in three days. That is another way of saying, it is I. Don't be afraid. So I can't get over this detail of Jesus Jesus intending to pass his disciples by, to go right past them as they suffered. But then to see the compassion, the generosity overflow 
when he tells them, it is I, don't be afraid, he will not let his disciples drown. What interests me right after this, after he gets in the boat, the wind dies down, is that they have a very hard time understanding what just happened. And Jesus even says that they lack faith, that they did not understand the feeding of the 5,000. They cannot see his generosity. They can't see a king full of compassion. Something inside of them can only talk, can only think about a king who judges and scolds. They can't understand that Jesus would come and that stopped the wind. For some reason, they have missed him. They have carried a particular idea about the king that has blinded their seeing Jesus clearly. And I don't know exactly what was all going on there, but they missed the generosity of the feeding of the 5,000. And because of that, they couldn't understand this great compassion and grace shown to them in this moment. You see, the only reason that God's story with his people never ends in despair is because he is always going to end the story with, it is I, don't be afraid. But his disciples had a hard time seeing that. They couldn't see him clearly. And so if I take all of that, if I take all of what we just looked at and bring it to some application for our real life, here's how I would start that application. I'd ask, I would, I would state this. And really ask as a question, can we feel like, uh, we can feel like we're straining against the wind in the middle of the sea. But there is hope if we see Jesus clearly. I don't know about you, but I, I, I know that there are many among us that are in that boat right now. And the winds are coming and they're crashing against the boat. And it doesn't seem like Jesus is anywhere, anywhere close. And yet, there can be hope. But you're going to have to see Jesus clearly. And I'm going to really boil that down, boil that down to two, like two options. There are a lot of other options, but I just want to boil it down to two options. Can you see him? Uh, do you see him? Do you see Jesus as stingy, distant, and judgmental? Is that how you see Jesus? Now, I know what the church answer is. I get that. Like, you're never supposed to say that. Like, the church answer is something... Along the, along the lines of the opposite of all those. But if it comes right down to it, when you're in the boat and the winds are crashing up against you and you're crying out, why, why, why? Sometimes that why is coming because really deep down, Jesus is judging you. That's how you feel. Because God, if he was that good, would never allow, never allow the winds to crash against your boat like this. So we really got to think about how you see Jesus. I tend to think we default to this in our horizontal relationships. So typically we will default to seeing people as judgmental, stingy, distant. And it doesn't take much to translate that to Jesus. And if this is how we fundamentally understand Jesus, particularly when we're suffering, we're going to have a hard time having any hope in the midst of the storm. But there's the second question. Do you see him, do you see him as generous, close, and compassionate? 
So if this is how you see Jesus, then it doesn't matter how strong the winds are, you can have hope. You know what happens when a little kid, so like if Ava is scared, my little four-year-old is scared, and she doesn't want to walk into a dark room because she has, she has some vision of all the bad things that could be in that dark room. You know what happens when I take her by the hand and walk her into the room? She goes, and her fears go away. But do you know what she still doesn't know? She has no idea what is still in that room. She still doesn't know what's in the room. It's still dark. And she doesn't even know why I'm okay with going into the dark room. But she knows me. And because she knows me, she knows everything else must be okay. But do you know what I'm still doing? Taking her into a dark room. But it's because she's with me. And so I don't understand why people get cancer and die early. I don't understand that. But I know God will not allow that story to end with despair. No student of Jesus will end with despair. I know that it will be okay because I know him. I don't understand the cancer. I do not understand the heart attacks. I do not understand the car accident. I don't understand the defect at birth. I don't understand any of that. I don't understand the empty bank account. I don't understand the unemployment. It's like a dark room, but if you're holding the hand of someone who is generous and compassionate, all will be well. I don't know how it will be well. Just like Ava does not understand how in the world a dark room will be safe. But as long as I'm holding his hand, it will be well. And so I really want to hold a vision of Jesus that is full of compassion and generosity. Because when you have that, you will have safety. You'll have all the safety you would ever need. Because you will gain a perspective that will tell you all is well. All is well. And you will hear him say, it is I, don't be afraid. So let's take that down to a next step. Let's get that down, down onto something that you and I can do this week, maybe today. This one's going to require some imagination included in the next step here. Imagine Jesus at your kitchen table telling you, it is I, don't be afraid. So I want you to do this with me. Could you do this with me? Let's just uh, take a moment, uh, and I want you to kind of work out this next step right now. So would you just close your eyes? I'm not asking for any salvation decisions. No one's raising their hand. I'm asking you to just, just be quiet. Just go to your kitchen or go to your dining room, wherever you got a table that you would typically sit at. Will you just go there? Just go to that place. You can make it morning. It can be the afternoon. Maybe you like the evening as the sun sets, wherever you want to be. Just imagine you're sitting in one of your favorite chairs right there at that table. I just want you to imagine now whatever you want Jesus to look like, just put them in the chair right, right across the table. Can you see him? Now I want you to imagine that Jesus puts his hands out. I mean, real hands. And I want you to imagine now that you just put your hands in his hands. And I want you, as you are looking at your hands together, 
want you to raise your eyes and look into his eyes. And there's a moment where you're just quiet. And then I want you to see Jesus looking back at you. And then I want you to hear him say to you, it is I. Don't be afraid. You've never seen someone speak that sincerely to you before. That is your next step this week. You can open your eyes. That's a way of training as a student of Jesus to see Jesus clearly. Just leverage that imagination that God gave you. And this week, whenever you're scared, you take yourself back to that kitchen table. Your hands in His. You get your eyes locked in His. And you hear Him say, It is I. Don't be afraid. Let me pray for you. Father, would you just have great compassion on us? If it is not trouble this week, at some point we will face trouble. And we will find ourselves in a boat, straining at the oars as the wind hits the side of our boat. Would you just, would you bring back this memory? Would you bring back this, this image of your son and all of his generosity, all of his compassion, all of his nearness, holding our hands in his and locking eyes with those comforting words, it is I, don't be afraid. So Holy Spirit, would you just, would you just train us to see Jesus that clearly? Forgive us for any hard-heartedness that we have where we can't see your Son. Would you just move us away from the way the disciples acted in this moment so that we may see you clearer than we've ever seen you? And we're really glad we got that kind of hope. And it will only be found in your Son, Jesus. We ask that in his authority, in his name, and together as a church family, we can say, Amen.